Good morning and uh, <clears throat> welcome everyone to the session. My name is Jatin and we are going to talk about database migration in this session. A uh, little bit about myself, I'm a database specialist partner solutions architect and on a day-to-day -day basis I work with database partners like you and get involved a lot with database migrations. Uh, that is what this topic is about. Uh, along with me is Ashok. He's going to talk to you later about some parts in this session as well. Ashok will be back on the stage to join us later on. All right, so let's take a look at what we are going to talk about here today. Uh, we are talking about three main things here. First one is going to be planning a heterogeneous migration. Uh, we'll try to answer some of the very loaded questions, like when we deal with database migrations, especially coming out of Oracle, going into Aurora Postgres. Why sometimes some of the migrations take too much of time? Oh, that's a very loaded question to answer. And sometimes it is that the migrations last only for like four to six weeks typically, and sometimes some other migration drag out to be months long. So what are the factors which control that? We're going to answer that question. In the second part, we are going to talk about some AWS supply tools like database migration service and schema conversion tool, and Ashok will be talking to you how to best utilize them. We are going to talk specifically how they can be helpful with when you are using Oracle as source and going into Aurora PostgreSQL, so a little bit of customizations there. And then we are finally going to talk about when we dealt with so many of these migrations, what are the things that we learned that you can adopt when you are planning to take these things into production, uh, adapting Aurora PostgreSQL as your preferred production target. A little bit of disclaimer here. It's a 300 level migration session, so I expect you guys are familiar at least with uh, Amazon Aurora and DMS and SCT. So some parts of this session, especially in section two and three, are assuming a knowledge of Amazon Aurora and DMS SCT. However, before we go there, let's take a quick look at the value proposition of Aurora. Because what you have got to start yourself with this commercial to Aurora PostgreSQL migration, uh, specifically with Oracle and also with SQL Server and other commercial grade databases, is that you buy very expensive enterprise licenses, pay upfront cost to it. Then you are hopefully in a multi-year long contract with them. And then there are licenses which most of us don't understand. Uh, to be honest, like I've worked with so many enterprise companies and nobody fully understands the license terms and they generally end up hiring a specialist for that uh, who can help them do and run their audits. So it's not a very pleasant experience. And this thing is actually true for not just databases, but any proprietary software. But with databases, the story gets even more amplified. And the solution always was try to go towards, uh, more and more towards <coughs> open source solutions, right? But MySQL and PostgreSQL, even though they were alternatives for quite a while, they were not a very preferred choice, especially when we were talking about large enterprises because they are running serious workloads and sometimes there is a shyness. Uh, they don't want to lose control and predictability what they are getting guaranteed with the enterprise grade software solutions and so on because they have doubts in mind that they would lose the speed and scale and performance which they are getting with the enterprise grade softwares. This is where Aurora fits in very nicely. 
Aurora was reimagined for cloud, was a platform built ground up and provides you the same performance and availability as of a high-end commercial database engine with the simplicity and cost effectiveness of the open source databases and is drop-in compatible with MySQL and PostgreSQL. And you, uh, what you get with the cloud, because it is delivered as a managed service, so you get to use pay-as-you-go pricing model, increased elasticity, agility, all the good things you can think of about services which are being delivered on the cloud, right? But again, we are not talking about Aurora in detail here, so we'll shift to uh, migration strategies here. So why migration strategy and why is it important? Or why did we even choose this question to answer here, right? So most of the time when I go to field and talk to partners and the customers, I get a feedback that they do possess hard skills. They do possess the skills in Oracle. There are good Oracle DBAs out there. There are good PostgreSQL DBAs out there. They possess the skills with tools to migrate the data and so on, right? They now understand AWS Cloud, it's a mature platform and so on. But the question which remains unanswered is that when they are traversing a very large environment where there are hundreds and hundreds of databases, they still don't have that certainty, still don't have that confidence that they can say that, okay, if I'm doing a 200 database migration, this is how long this project is going to last because each database migration is going to take just four weeks or six weeks and then I multiply those numbers with number of databases and I get a simple math to do. So why does that happen? Why some of the migrations are simple? Why some of the migrations are complex? That's the problem statement here that we are trying to answer. Let's try to understand with this diagram which typically shows how a database migration lifecycle looks like and where do we actually go and spin? So if you look here, generally the analysis phase and the production cutover phase is a very well-defined phase. You take a buy-in from the stakeholders, you provision your infrastructure, you grant permissions and all, you set up, you, you talk to the main people in the team and try and understand the environment and so on. That just doesn't drag out that much. The production cutover itself is kind of very well-defined phase. You set up the source and the target environment, both source and target are in sync, you take a blackout, you do the outage. Generally, I haven't seen that thing dragging out as well, but the things which spin and spin and which make it more variable is when you go into the actual schema design and you figure out there's a lot of PLSQL or there are incompatible data types or there are other certain issues which you run into or when you are doing a data migration that is failing for X, Y, or Z reasons, and we are going to talk about that in the next section as well. Or there are application code issues. The way the application was developed itself was very, very different. So to help you accurately predict this, what we tell our partners is that if you do somewhat more intelligent analysis, you can actually safely and accurately predict the time it would actually take. Let's take a look at that. And most of the time when you start an analysis for a database migration project, most people started with creating an inventory. And if you're coming out of an Oracle environment, the inventory generally looks like this, what you can see at the bottom half. Most people try to create a list of Oracle instances showing the footprint. They define SLAs and OLAs, how, what applications connect to them, how critical they are, what features they are using, and so on, right? Now, this is a very, very good start and we need that. 
But this doesn't generally say which one is easy or which one is not so easy. It doesn't talk about the schema complexity. It doesn't talk about the type of application which is connecting to it, right? So we tell our customers that try to accommodate a technical questionnaire or a migration assessment questionnaire along with it and try to cover different pieces of assessment, both technical in nature, process specific in nature, and also cover the personnel and tool which are actually running that large environment. So for example, you might actually be dealing with an Oracle migration going into Aurora PostgreSQL. Now technically it's a simple migration. You had converted the schema, migrated the data over, it's a very easy one, it's in sync. But then you figure out, then while you are going into production, the operation support team doesn't have processes set up, say, to do user and account management. Or someone comes to you and say, hey, I'm going to production, but I'm not comfortably managing this environment in production because I do not know what are the key metrics to watch in production. How do I alert my team if this thing goes down? Not a technical issue, but it's a process readiness issue, right? And it might derail your migration as well. So it's very important to cover that aspect as well. Or say you are, it's, it's a technically simple migration, you're very comfortable to get. Later on you figure out that the cutover time actually is for this application because it was a tier one critical application, is less than one minute. But you did not device your migration in such a way that you can actually guarantee less than one minute of outage during the production cutover. So what is going to happen? Even though it's technically easy, you did the technical assessment, you saw the schema was easy, but you did not talk to your IT application team. You did not see what uh, the skill set is to run it in production. Uh, you did not assess whether you can freeze the application, whether you can freeze the code changes and do the parallel code changes, or you did not figure out that you can actually maintain the DDL changes when the source and target schema uh, may be out of sync when the last 15 days you are just watching that application. It may totally detail your total migration, right? So that's kind of a variable thing which uh, gets built into it. Now, technical assessment is generally an easier piece to do, and we can build a methodology around it. But people mostly miss out uh, on the other parts of this assessment. Now, let's take a look at uh, some of these examples on how you can actually uh, deep dive into some of this thing, right? So when you talk about database migrations, generally, you can split the RDBMS workload into either OLTP workload or a data warehousing workload. Now, as it is with Oracle, the database was always considered a Swiss Army knife, traditionally doing everything. I mean, everything. <laughs> so a lot of time I get this question asked that I have a Oracle database which I want to migrate over to AWS, where it's like 80 terabyte in size or 100 terabyte in size. Now, Aurora does not offer more than 64 terabyte. RDS does not offer more than 16 terabyte. So this means I cannot migrate, right? So I ask people, generally you should start this discussion with what do you do with that data? What do you do with that 80 terabytes? Is it just traditionally that you were just dumping all the data in there? Does it contain a lot of video files or maybe PDFs just all stored in there? Or are there archival use cases in there? You, you did not even think about archiving that data. Now you have so many methods, like did you think about going into Redshift or EMR, can S3 help you? So this is generally the step one when you're running an assessment. It's a good question to ask. Can the business and the technical teams are open enough to refactor these things? And maybe not OLTP use case is the answer to them. The next thing which people often miss is that they don't look at the application that closely. 
as they should be looking at. Now we try to classify some of these applications based on the kind of workloads and uh, they run and the way they have been designed. And we figured out that you can actually put most of the applications into one of these five categories. Category one being the simple one, and as you move down that list, the complexity would increase with respect to migration. So let's talk about category one, simple Java application, Python application, Perl application, using JDBC or DBC drivers, hardly any PLSQL code written into database, generally would be a very, very easy migration target, I can tell you. Category two and category three, as you can read out here, is custom web application with some PLSQL code or with heavy PLSQL code. It's generally where most of the people make a mistake and overlap these things and give a wrong assessment on time estimate on these things. The way I try to categorize it is, if it is like 100, 150 PLSQL procedure and functions, not using very advanced PLSQL features, Schema design is kind of simplistic. Mostly you are using tables, indexes, views on top of it. I would categorize it as category two. Versus category three, which would be tough to migrate. You are using hundreds of PLSQL procedures and functions. You have packages built in. You have relatively difficult schema to migrate. You have a lot of materialized views in, thrown in there. Advanced PLSQL pro, uh, features used in there. Category three versus category four, if you take a look at, Take example of PLSQL or take example of uh, Oracle Forms and Reports, right? If you're using those things, you're using Oracle Application uh, Express, or you're using, say, an ERP application, you have a Remedy application sitting on top of that Oracle database, and if you're thinking of migrating that over, it would be more complex to do so, right? You would have to work with the vendor to actually recertify that application to work with your new database, and then you would be only touching that. Versus category five, which are generally like 20 years old application, OCIC written down. Now, there are ways to work around those as well. Not a drop-in replacement, but there are like uh, PostgreSQL provide ECPG and things like that to actually work around that. It's very important at this point that when you are doing these assessments, you try to look at the applications as well very closely and try to segregate those applications based on their workload and try to make some sense out of it so you can get a fair estimate on which ones are going to be an easy ones and which ones are going to be more difficult ones. Another thing which people do is just put it in simple and complex bucket based on some of these factors, right? Is it a single schema, just looking at the schema versus multiple schemas? which are in there. Now, database size is generally not that big of a factor, but it can be one of the factor. Are you using an object relation model like Hibernate can make some of the things much simpler versus are you using embedded SQL? Versus we talked about there's heavy PLSQL code versus business logic is residing in the application. Are you using a lot of commercial BI ETL tools on top of it versus hand-coded Perl C code? Also non-technical things like are there active dev and test team which can actually work with that application versus there is nobody who understands the code and it's a black box can actually make a lot of difference when you are trying to migrate those things over. Important factors to consider. Now another thing, and this one actually looks just at the schema which people like doing, uh, is get some kind of a empirical calculation on top of it. So in this example, what we did is we started assigning weightage to the schema objects. For example, we put a 0.5 against table. Relatively easy to migrate non-partition tables. Most of them are auto-converted with the tools which we provide you. I mentioned some comments in there, and 
Ashok will be covering some of those and where to those up uh, later on. We have a full-fledged Oracle to PostgreSQL migration handbook which talks a lot about these. But I can take an example if you're just doing a sysdate, and there is no sysdate function in PostgreSQL. You can use clock timestamp. The date functions, if you're using a default uh, sysdate in there, you have to be cautious that what time zone your client is using. Maybe you want to convert it to a timestamp with time zone and things like that. So there would be minimal involvement, but you need to start looking at those things if you are trying to do a deep schema analysis in there as well. Then you talk about materialized views. Now, given the fact that materialized views, we do not have fast refresh in PostgreSQL, so there are a lot of materialized views. You might run into more complexity, so that's why we put more weightage in there and so on. So what do you do when you assign this weightage? You can simply multiply that weightage with the number of those objects and can come at a total number and can start putting them in different buckets. Now, one of the examples where we are working with one of the customer they took this thing and put it in different buckets. And if the number, total number was less than 300, they simply classified it as a simpler schema to migrate, would take less effort. They also clubbed it with the amount of redo generation per hour, and then tried to make some judgment on it. Will it going to be, is it going to be complex or easy versus relatively somewhere in the middle? So this is an example which is fairly commonly what we see in a large environment, a lot of things turn out to be simpler schema, like in this example, 85 of those are simpler. We thought, or based on some calculations, we came out that the estimated effort per database would be four to six weeks. Now there are tools which provide this estimate as well. Ora to PG will give you some estimate, for example. You can use that, but we used uh, this calculation. We used this uh, Excel sheet to break it down on how it would look like. If you look at a typical distribution on the effort on how would a database migration timeline look like, you would see when you move from a relatively a bit of a complex migration, most of the time the analysis phase or the production cutover phase kind of stays the same. As you are seeing, I'm moving through this screen. The kind of overlap which is happening is the number of weeks where we are spending most of the effort is between stage two and stage five. We are doing cyclically doing schema migration, application migration, testing, going back and forth with data migration things. And it depends on the factors which we just discussed, right? So what do we do? What are the most successful things we have seen so far? So when working with some of the very large customers who are handling hundreds of these databases, the things which we have seen, the environments which we have seen were most successful were the one which staggered these uh, environments and put this in different phases. So you need not take a big bang approach to do these migrations. You can actually divide them based on the analysis we did. And you need not use one of those three models. You can actually club those three models and use overlapping thing as well, right? If it's a Java-based thing, like category one, clubbed with a complex schema, maybe you want to put it as not so simple, but a little bit difficult migration. Now, every environment is different, so you'll definitely learn and gain up speed as you move through them. A smart thing to do is find out an easy lighthouse win in your environment, build some processes on top of it, and then learn from then once you have some success on that, uh, try to use multiple parallel streams of work to work through that. It's generally good to assign a central project coordinator so that if the teams move, you have the lessons learned and 
they can report the status and remove the blockers as, as it, they are learning experiences from different teams. Generally, good practice that we have seen is that you assign multiple teams depending upon different kind of applications that you are migrating. If the same team is repeating the similar pattern of migrations, you can generally gain more speed on top of it rather than just reassigning the same uh, team a different kind of a migration next time. So for a very, very large environment, these are generally the approaches uh, that we take. I would welcome uh, Ashok back on stage. He would talk to you about AWS Applied Tools, which is DMS and SCT, and he'll talk you through how you can use them. Thank you, Jatin. So in this section, I'm going to talk about how to actually migrate your database from Oracle to Aurora Postgres using a couple of tools. So the migration is a two-step process. In the first step, you would migrate your, or convert your schema using the schema conversion tool from Oracle to Postgres. And in the next step, you would actually migrate the data using database migration service. SET is a desktop application. You can download it and install it on your laptop or desktop, or if you prefer, run it off uh, EC2 instance. And this is the interface for SET. If you look at it on the extreme left and right side, you have the object browser that shows you the objects in the source database and the target database. In between, you have your code browser, which will show you the side-by-side -side view of the code, how it appears before migration, and how it appears after SCT has migrated. And in case SCT cannot automatically convert the database object, for example, a function or a procedure, it'll give you manual conversion tips. SCT can convert your database storage objects like tables, indexes, etc. It can also do code object conversion, for example, functions, procedures, triggers, too. Once you have converted your schema, right, from, let's say, Oracle to Postgres, before you apply it, you can save the files as SQL files. So what it does is, like, uh, SCT will save one separate SQL file for your tables and PKs, another SQL file for your foreign keys and secondary indexes, and the third one for your functions, and so on and so forth. So this lets you create your target database, apply only the DDL for generating your tables and primary keys, then you'll do the full load or migrate the initial data using DMS, and then create the foreign key indexes and uh, you know functions and procedures, et cetera. So when you're migrating your, or converting your schema using SCT, you should keep an eye on your memory consumption. For example, if you have a large schema with thousands of objects, it's going to consume quite a bit of uh, memory. So if you run the SCT tool on a laptop, it might be slow. So you should look at running it off an EC2 instance, for example, with 8 GB of memory. So next, you can change the memory consumption pattern for SCT in two places. One is within the global settings, where you can trade off the speed of conversion for more uh, you know, memory consumption. Second option for you is to change it in your, change the JVM settings in the SCT config file. Often you would have been uh, asked, hey, I got this Oracle database. I want to migrate it to Postgres. Can you tell me how long it takes in terms of effort? Can it be done? What is the complexity, right? Often you're forced to guess, make an educated guess. So with SCT, we have a migration assessment report feature. So what you do is you simply fire up SCT, connect the source and the target schemas, and run the migration assessment report. So this migration assessment report has got two parts. One is a summary, other is a detail. The summary view will tell you exactly how many objects are there in the database, how many of them can be converted automatically using SCT, and how many of them require manual intervention or actions to convert. 
So the objects that require manual actions to convert, right, it'll classify them as three, into three buckets. One is objects with simple actions to convert, objects with sim uh, medium or complex actions, objects that require significant action to convert. Simple complexity uh, means like one hour or less to convert, medium complexity is four hours or less to convert, and significant is more than four hours. So using the summary assessment report, you can easily figure out how long will it take for you to convert this schema. So next time somebody asks you this question, right, you download the tool, maybe spend a couple of hours running this against your database to get an idea of that. Not very difficult to do, so you can make educated guess. Second thing, it's got a detail section, and for all the objects that cannot be converted automatically, in the detail section will give you options. For example, if you're using virtual columns in Oracle, there's no equivalent for that in Postgres. So the tool will recommend that you use or emulate it using triggers. Next, SET can do a good job of converting all your schema objects and your code objects and all that. But it does not translate everything. For example, uh, users' roles and grants are handled differently in Oracle compared to how they are done in Postgres. So you'll have to write helper scripts for migrating them. There's a great AWS database uh, blog at this link that talks about how to do it when you're moving from Oracle to Aurora Postgres, and it's got sample code. You can download that and reuse that in your projects. The migration process, right, uh, has two components to that. First, when you convert your schema, you can automate some of the actions using tools like the schema conversion tool. Some of them require manual action or manual intervention using your DBA know-how. So the migration playbook captures all that information. It's about 300 pages. It's got detailed examples and samples for converting each Oracle feature to the corresponding uh, Postgres feature. And it'll list out all the features of Oracle. For example, like if you're using index organized tables, it'll say that the compatible feature in Postgres is to use cluster tables. And if you're using function-based indexes, it'll recommend that you go with expression indexes. So when you're migrating your, or converting a schema, right, this is a very, very useful reference. It's free to download and use for you. Once you're converted schema, right, the next step is to do the migration of the actual data. The data migration you will be doing using database migration service. For example, take this scenario. The customer has got Oracle database on-premises, and he wants to convert or migrate the data to Aurora on AWS. So the DMS can help you do minimum downtime migration as well. For example, in this case, right, the user has got a Oracle database on-premises. First step, you create the AWS infrastructure, the VPC, and connect it to on-prem using VPN or Direct Connect. And after that, you create the target database, which is Aurora Postgres here. Then you create a replication instance. You connect the source and the target database to the replication instance. And then, first step, DMS will do a full load. Full load is nothing but migrating the existing data that is there. For example, you might have 10 terabytes of data. Initial migration of that is called the full load. When the full load is happening, for example, let's say the full load takes 12 hours, right? Your application is online. Users are continuing to access the application and make changes to the database on-prem. Once the full load is done, DMS would have cached these changes. It can apply the changes using change data capture. So once the databases are in sync, after applying the CDC, you have two copies of your data. One is on-premise, other is on AWS. Then at the migration window or cutover window, you just flip the application from on-prem to AWS. So it helps you minimize 
your downtime while you're migrating, fairly straightforward process, not complicated. And definitely you should look at using this. Coming to the components of DMS, right? There are three main components. One is your replication instances. Second is your endpoints. And third is the task. Task does the actual job of migrating a data from the source to the target. And the tasks run on replication instances. The replication instances, we have three types. One is your compute optimized or the C-type replication instance. The next is your memory optimized or the R-type replication instance. And finally, we have the bustable replication instances. The choice of a replication instance size and type is uh, pretty important when you're doing a migration. So if you're, for non-production workloads, you would go with your burstable or T-type replication instance. And if you're doing heterogeneous migrations, right, for example, from Oracle to Aurora Postgres, the migration can be CPU intensive. So in that scenario, you would consider using a C-type replication instance or a compute-optimized replication instance. If you're doing CDC, right, or ongoing replication, if the source database has got a lot of changes happening, in that case, you should use a memory-optimized replication instance because it would be memory-intensive. Finally, each of the replication instances has got certain amount of EBS storage or local storage on that. DMS uses this uh, storage for storing the log files and for caching the changes when it's doing CDC. By default, the storage that is allocated, for example, the C type has got 100 GB of storage. That is enough for most use cases. But in certain scenarios where the source database has got a lot of changes happening, you might want to increase this size. Finally, you can monitor your replication instance using CloudWatch metrics. There are CloudWatch metrics for figuring out how much CPU consumption is there, what is the freeable memory, how much storage is consumed. So by monitoring these metrics, you can figure out if you need to you know, go for a bigger replication instance size or need to switch between your compute-optimized or memory-optimized replication instance. Endpoints are how you actually connect your source and target database. Each endpoint has got a certain extra connection attribute that you can add to that to influence the behavior of the endpoint. For example, let's say if you're using Oracle as a source and you're doing CDC, you can choose to go with either the log miner or the binary reader. Log miner is an Oracle native feature that will expose your changes as an SQL-like interface, whereas your binary reader is a DMS feature which will read the raw redo log files. By default, you should use the log miner, which is the default for DMS. And log miner will support most Oracle features, including all compression options and encryption. And when you're using log miner, what happens is the changes are captured on the source and mined on the source. Whereas with binary reader, the changes are captured on the source and mined on the replication instance. So due to this difference, there can be ex extra load on the source if you're using the log miner. So in instances where there's a lot of changes happening on the source or there are multiple tasks running in parallel on the source, you should consider using the binary reader for performance. Next, when you're using, when you're using DMS to migrate your data, some of the data types would be numeric. So if you look at a numeric data type, there are two things over there. One is the precision and the scale. The precision is the number of digits in a number. The scale is the number of digits after the decimal point. By default, DMS will use a precision and scale of 38 and 10. So if you want to 
change the scale, for example, from 10 to 12, you can use the number data type scale parameter on the connection attribute to change that. Finally, when using Oracle as a source, right, you can use a Oracle Active Data Guard standby as a source for your migration. So in this setup, you have a primary Oracle database, there's Active Data Guard standby, they are replicating, and DMS will use the standby as a source. Sometimes in this setup, there can be a replication lag between the primary and the standby. So you can let DMS know about this by using the standby delay time parameter. Using Postgres as your target, right, and Oracle as a source, what DMS does is to copy the full load or initial data, it will extract the data from the source, copy it into CSV files, and then use the bulk upload features of Postgres to load it into the target. So by default, it uses a file size of 32 MB, and in scenarios where there are fewer number of tables or if your replication instance has got sufficient memory, right, you can increase the size of the file for improving your performance. You can use your maximum file size parameter for doing this. Now coming to the DMS task, there are four main components of a DMS task. One is your migration type. The migration type tells DMS what to do actually. There can be three options. One is a full load or migrate existing data. Second option is do uh, CDC that is chain data capture or also known as ongoing replication or ongoing migration. And finally, you can do a combination of both. You can do a full load initially followed by a CDC. Second is your target table preparation mode. So basically this tells DMS what to do before loading data into the target tables. It can do one of three things. One is do nothing. Second is drop and recreate the table. And third is truncate the data. So by default, you should use do nothing or uh, truncate when using DMS because it's better to pre-create the tables with SET. So finally, when you're migrating, right, some of the columns might be columns. So when you're using lob, you can handle it in two ways. One is you can choose a full lob mode. In this scenario, what DMS will do is irrespective of the lob size, it will copy the entire lob from the source to the target. Second option, you can go for limited lob mode. In this scenario, you will choose a maximum lob size. And DMS will truncate the lob, which are larger than the maximum lob size. Uh, limited lob mode is better in terms of performance because DMS can uh, pre-allocate the memory and load the lob in bulk if you're using the limited lob mode. Finally, you have selection and transformation rules. Selection rules specify which schema, which tables to include or exclude when you're doing the migration. Transformation rules help you rename tables, columns, or convert, convert your schema names or table names or column names from uppercase to lowercase. This is an example of a simple DMS task. It's got one selection rule that includes the DMS underscore sample schema. Then it has got four other selection rules that exclude these four tables. And finally, it has got a transformation rule that convert the schema name from uppercase to lowercase. When you're doing a full load or migrating existing data, right, it's important that you do not 
create your foreign keys or secondary indexes. You just create the target database, create only the tables and the primary keys. The reason for that is when you're doing a full load, DMS will load the data table by table in parallel. It will not regard any foreign key constraints. So what you do is you create the target database, create your uh, tables and uh, primary keys, and then do the full load. Once the full load is completed, you would enable your foreign keys and secondary indexes and then create your function procedures and other objects. And finally, most importantly, when you're migrating from Oracle to Postgres, you should remember that Postgres uses lowercase. So you should use transformation rules to convert your schema name, table name, and column name from uppercase to lowercase. And if you're doing CDC, you can use either the log miner or the binary reader. Both of them will read the changes from the Oracle online or archived redo log files. So it's important to tell DMS when doing CDC, when to start picking up the changes. You have three options for that. One is you can specify a Oracle system change number or SCN. Second option, you can specify a custom start time. If you specify a custom start time, what DMS will do will internally will go and convert that custom start time into a Oracle SCN. And finally, you can specify a DMS checkpoint at the start of your CDC task. Now I'll hand it back to Jatin, who is going to talk about some best practices for production rollout. All right, thank you, Ashok. So let's talk about some of the best practices when you are actually using or going to use Aurora in production, right? Because migration is one thing, but the whole success of the migration depends upon how well you will be able to run this thing in production. And when you talk to your business, when you talk to the main stakeholders in, in your environment or in your organization, they generally ask these questions based on the key performance indicators that you are adapting this new product. How do you measure the success criteria? How do you find out that this thing is going to run fine? What are your key metrics? For example, uh, how well does it scale? What kind of uptime does it provide to you? Do you have robust backup and restore procedures written, RPO, RTO times? How well can you run your maintenance? Can you do capacity planning on it? Things like that, right? So let's see some of the things uh, which we think are important and which we hear a lot from our customers when they went into production and some of the configuration which you can learn about. First and the foremost thing is the infrastructure planning when you are going into production. Now this is one thing which generally you cannot go horribly wrong when you are migrating on AWS, given the fact that it's very simple to scale up and scale down. So generally a good practice when doing migration is that we tell our customers to use a larger size instance because it provides more throughput. It's, it's a no-brainer. And then run this thing in production for a while and see what kind of workload requirement do you really have, and then select a maintenance window, and then you can downsize that instance based on your consistent requirement in the, in the production, right? Another thing which we have seen is uh, that people, when they do benchmarks, they forget that when they choose our Aurora environment, the kind of environment which Aurora is giving you already is writing six different copies in three different availability zones. So even if you choose a dev or a test machine, 
it is actually a very highly available machine that you are testing on. So if you're doing a performance benchmark, generally a miss that I see is that the equivalent Oracle benchmark, generally people don't do it on a high availability machine. So always when you're doing performance benchmarking, do a comparative benchmark. Select a machine which is synchronously writing to at least two different availability zones, has kind of the same write penalty, so you can get an equivalent benchmark. Now people tend to focus too much on one thing which this is, okay, when I'm migrating over, I, I do see that the CPU utilization on Aurora is higher as compared to what Oracle used to give me. Now these things are good when you're running in production, but this is not actual performance benchmark that you are doing. Try to find out what are your throughput numbers, what are the kind of response times you want, because Aurora has been designed to scale very well with high concurrent connections. So define a good performance benchmark and lead you to success. There are key parameters which we say uh, you should pay attention to. Now with Aurora platform, we give you DB parameter group and cluster parameter group. Remember that database parameter group is not something which is using PostgreSQL defaults. PostgreSQL defaults can be different, whereas database parameter group, which is attached to Aurora PostgreSQL, has some of the defaults which are made so to work very well with uh, most of the workloads when they run against Aurora platform. I can give you an example. If you look at the DB cache size in PostgreSQL, you use a default value of 25% because it relies on the file system cache and so on. Whereas on uh, Aurora environment, we set a default to 75%. In some cases, if you are using, say, for example, R4 large machine, which gives you a 16 gig RAM, with 75% default setting, you would see that you are left with one gig of freeable memory. If you're running a large maintenance, you might run into swapping issues and things like that. So keep these things in mind uh, when you're planning around that you are changing database engine behavior. You're coming out of Oracle going into PostgreSQL engine, which is different. Your SQL queries plans can change. So pay attention to query planning behavior. Consider parameters like default statistics target, which you can raise to give optimizer more choice to gather more stats on it, benchmark those SQL plans, and so on. Another thing is that there are CloudWatch metrics, and I hope you are all aware with CloudWatch metrics, but for Aurora platform specifically, there are different CloudWatch metrics which have been designed. Try to understand those. There is things like commit throughput and commit latency, read throughput and read latency, write throughput and write latency. Now we don't publish absolute numbers on which uh, what those are supposed to be for good and the bad reasons. But if you look at your workloads and try to compare it against a good day versus bad day, you can build metrics on top of it. Very, very important that you understand the different CloudWatch metrics which have just been exposed for our environment. Also, if you are dealing with performance issues, most of the time if you raise a support case, work with AWS Premium Support, the first thing they are going to tell you is enable enhanced monitoring. Now, enhanced monitoring is something where you can uh, get exposed to over 50 system metrics. You can even look at the background processes which are running there, which one is consuming how much memory and CPU and can go down to the granularity level of one second. Very important that you do that. Another thing is when you are changing engine coming out from Oracle going into PostgreSQL, there is a different way that PostgreSQL maintains MVCC. Both of them use multi-version concurrency control to be asset compliant, but Postgres has a very different behavior. It uh, manages row versions inside the tables. So very important thing that you pay attention to the vacuuming, and there are parameters related to it which you can actually tune. 
Now, generally, when people are dealing with migration, they tend to ignore it because the workload is still not running in production. But when they actually move into production, they figure out after a while that, oh, this vacuuming has become a big issue in there, right? And as per my experience, if you are dealing with performance issues, vacuuming is the number one thing which you should be paying attention to. Now, there are several blog posts and case studies which we have published in there. Uh, we have put some links in there which you can go and check. Another thing I would want to mention is, and I talked about CloudWatch metrics as well, that there is actually a EBS volume attached to Aurora instances. Now, that's limited in size. As of today, you cannot uh, attach another EBS volume with a larger size or scale it up or scale it down. The size of that EBS volume is roughly two times the size of RAM. The EBS volume is used to store your logging data and temp data. So if you have aggressively turned on auditing or doing uh, maintenance operations a lot, it's, it can actually fill up. So make sure you watch the CloudWatch matrix, uh, which is free local storage, to keep an eye on it, especially when you're running these workloads in production. If you take a look at availability thing, uh, a common thing that I find is that people tend to still use instance endpoints, a very common problem when they fail over and they'll figure out that that instance is already gone, which they were using as an endpoint. As a good practice, we always recommend use the reader and writer cluster endpoints. Also, aggressively set TCP keep alive, so your queries don't rely on the read timeout only. Now, these things specifically are out there on the public website as well, but it's very important that you understand that Java specifically has this behavior where it will cache the IP addresses, and you may see elongated uh, failover times because it will still try to connect to that IP from where you have failed over. So aggressively set Java DNS caching timeout and so on. Very important that you understand these things while you are prepping your environment up and going into production. Another few things which you can actually watch out for, and Ashok talked about it uh, uh, a little while back that PostgreSQL is a lowercase dictionary. Now the whole intent of this slide is that you appreciate the engine differences. Both the engines are different. There are good things with PostgreSQL that it is actually known as a developer database. Comes with 64 different data types, much more than what Oracle offers. So you can design your workload, take advantage of these things which are available. There are more index types available there. There are problems that we have seen people uh, find out that it's lowercase dictionary, it doesn't have public synonym. The whole idea is that every functionality has something different which is available there. There is no dual table, there is no sysdate function, but there are equivalent which you can design there as well. Exception handling is a little bit uh, more expensive in uh, PostgreSQL because it creates save points and goes back to that thing. So we ask to design that in the application. That's a good practice. Another thing, uh, if you talk about migrations and talk about DMS, task is that you can run into, again, these cyclic things when you're running with DMS specifically and can become very cumbersome to troubleshoot those things. Always a good practice that you enable logging, but it still gives you a basic logging level. But there are ways that you can actually enhance it and go and enable detailed debug logging. There are metrics on the application instances which you can uh, watch out for. You can watch for CPU utilization. Like just any other EC2 instance, you can watch the replication instance matrix, whether it is swapping or not, or whether it's exhausting the IOPS. That can drastically slow down the whole migration thing uh, which is going on there. There are latency attached with CDC tasks that you can watch out for. 
Now, there are tuning parameters as well, which we expose to you when you are using DMS. Uh, you can use stream buffer size if you want uh, to bump it up and use uh, more streams to actually extract the data and do a faster extraction. This is a very good uh, blog series actually we have published, uh, which talks much more in detail about all of these things. The key takeaway, pay close attention to these things when you are dealing with the migrations, going into production, you need to understand that this environment is different. You need to have clear tips on troubleshooting. You need to have clear tips on uh, how to plan this ahead for production. Otherwise, the whole migration project can actually derail. Now, no matter how well you prepare, there are things which you always should do to design for a rollback. One of our clients actually used this scheme when they were coming out from legacy Oracle database. And that was the very first migration they were doing, still very apprehensive about whether Postgres is a good choice or not. What they did is that they used DMS to cut over to RDS Postgres SQL. And at the same time, they used DMS to again roll forward from that to a RDS Oracle instance. So even if they cut over and they figure out, oh, this is still not working because of X, Y, or Z reason, I can actually roll back to the same engine behavior, but I need not go back to my on-premises environment, I can still stay on the AWS cloud, but keep my old engine intact. Very important, no matter how well you plan, you should always have a rollback strategy in place. So that is where we are at this session. Hopefully, uh, we would have given you a good summary of use appropriate tool planning, design your own methodology, AWS, provides you schema conversion tool and database migration service, which you can use for your advantage. Understand that engines are different. The more you understand the source and the target engines, the easier the migration would become, more chances of your success. Very important that you define key performance indicators. You know how to performance benchmark. You know factors related to availability and other key aspects which we discussed. And always very important that you plan ahead for production, not just focus totally on migration, but always keep in mind that you have to run this thing in production and has to be an overall success. That's very important. We'll start taking questions here. If you have any, uh, please use a mic. That will be easier because they're still recording the questions. So grab a mic and ask a question if you have any. Ashok and I will also present off the stage to take any questions if you may have for some time. Uh, for the category three type of applications where you have high intensity PLSQL code, what is the success rate? Is it something like 70% or do you have any benchmark? Mm -hmm. So Oracle to PostgreSQL migration is something based on schema conversion tool itself. We have seen that PostgreSQL compatible engine that actually works when you are coming and doing these kind of heterogeneous migration. We have seen roughly the percentage which you just mentioned, 70 to 80%, but it varies on case-to-case -case basis. Okay. But that is accurate. It's around 70 to 80% that we see. And some part of it is uh, manual conversion as well. But over time, we are improving more and more, and target is to achieve more than 90% of automatic conversions. So <clears throat> what are the cases um, particular cases where you see the manual conversion. So I can um, give you some examples, like yeah. if you are very heavily reliant on DBMS features, that is where you would 
need to work around something. For example, you are using advanced queuing and you have DBMS underscore AQ or something. You would need to figure out what's the equivalent in PostgreSQL or if you can design around, maybe use simple queuing service in AWS or something uh, like that. There is no way that it can automatically convert that. Uh, things of that nature or column obfuscation or something like that if you are using. We'll see more and more of these things. Virtual columns, for example, as Ashok showed you, there's no uh, equivalent, but it, it's an easy conversion. You can design triggers and uh, put a column in there to do that kind of conversion. So there are workarounds available for that. The other, sorry, <clears throat> the other thing is about the partition, switching the partitions. Mm -hmm. Is it something that uh, Postgres doesn't support much? So Postgres does support partition. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's the a great improvement between version 9 and version 10 because you were reliant on triggers earlier and version 10 is much more efficient implementation. Uh, there are extension as well which you can use and I know several customers have even automated uh, that process um, of creating partition. Our team actually specializes in database migration so you can contact me, I can even provide you some of those scripts to like automatically do partition management, create partition, draw partition, similar features uh, what you used to do in Oracle. Now there is of course hash partitioning which is not supported in PostgreSQL. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Uh, hello, I, I have a short question regarding licensing. I don't know if you can comment a little bit. Uh, um, so, for example, if on-prem my, uh, my licenses are still on or I'm still uh, one year or so, and uh, but uh, for some other reasons I decide to do the, do the, the migration, would, I don't know if you can comment a little bit on... I'm not sure I got your question. So you're saying a customer still has licenses right. for Oracle if they're right. using and they want to migrate over? Uh, in this case, uh, uh, RDS uh, Postgres. Okay, so for RDS Postgres, you do not need license or Aurora Postgres, you do not need any license. Those are Oracle licenses you are talking about, right? Right. Okay, so I don't think I can comment on that because every environment is different. Case, licensing case is case. something I, we generally recommend you talk to a expert licensing guy who can actually comment on how you can deal with it. That's, uh, I don't think appropriate for me to answer that. <laughs> it's case by case, I think. Yeah. Hi, so uh, from your experience with working with your customer, do they do the whole database migration at once, or do you break it down into you know, like smaller chunks and move those into the cloud? There can be two answers to it. One thing is, uh, if you're talking about a single database migration, and you are in a state where you are using, say, a microservice kind of design, right? So there is a database, but there are several different services connecting to it, and every service has their own schema and connecting to that. In that case, you can strip parts of functionality and migrate it over uh, without touching even the other service as such. Or say it's, the, it's using a sharding scheme, you can migrate one shard at a time. If your question is more about if there are hundreds of databases, how do they plan around it? Generally, we have seen a good approach as a staggered approach because out of hundreds of those databases, there will absolutely be cases which are more complex to migrate over and so on. So we generally recommend you devise a phased approach and maybe phase one you plan to choose the easy targets and try to build some process around it and then phase two and phase three and so on. We don't recommend doing a big bang approach where you start 100 migrations yeah. at a time. So the second question that I have is if you have dependencies on your source database and you have to move your data back 
into the legacy Oracle database. Do you also <laughs> recommend DMS for that? If I have consumers who are still dependent on the data. Mm -hmm. So DMS is at, as of now, not recommended for two-way replication. I think that is what your question is, mm -hmm. that you are migrating from Oracle to Postgres SQL. Can you use it for two-way replication to sync it back? As of today, we don't recommend that. But the rollback strategy, which I showed you, you can actually use DMS to roll forward it to another uh, instance to device around yes. that. All right, thank you, sir. Sure. Uh, okay, I had a question around uh, auto-vacuuming. Mm -hmm. So um, in our production environment, we have an issue where auto-vacuum does not suffice, and we have to do vacuum full mm -hmm. in most of the cases. So is there a way, I mean, without, uh, by avoiding global locking on the table that we can do auto-vacuuming? There are definitely ways where you can actually tune the auto-vacuuming parameters by making it more aggressive for certain tables by setting uh, or assigning more worker processes just to deal with that. It varies a lot from environment to environment. We have very detailed case study for that. Uh, it's, it's something which goes more into detail and I can better answer your question offline on it. Uh, I can show you ways. There was a blog post which I showed you just now, which has very detailed case study just to address that question. But to answer your question for auto-vacuuming, you can definitely assign more auto-vacuumer uh, process, or you can find out which tables are actually taking more time and uh, set targets to it so that auto-vacuum is triggered more and more frequently for those tables. Okay. Thank you. So one question here. How can I uh, make sure that uh, migration or the replication is not crashing the prod system or overloading it? So I mean, I, I, I want to, um, to um, do the migration as fast as I can, so okay. how do I make sure I don't do okay. it too fast? So, see, performance try. and fast is generally <laughs> a question which can be uh, very, very detailed, and uh, it's, it's an open-ended question, right? Fast can mean a lot of things. So I can give you some tips. Uh, when you're doing migration from source to target using DMS, there are three main components in play here, right? Your source engine has a capacity as well. So if you're already overloaded on your source engine, is going to give you a lot of pains. If you're already running at 90% CPU, swapping very badly on source engine, is going to cause you problems. If you have a choice where it is uh, making a lot of DML changes and you use LogMiner, as Ashok was explaining, uh, you can actually uh, flip to binary reader uh, to make it more efficient. Then on DMS instance, if you end up choosing a low-end DMS instance, the DMS instance can actually crawl if you're using, say, T2 machine or um, have IOPS exhaustion there. So choose an appropriate style of replication instance. There are different uh, okay. R and C capacity depending upon what kind of workload you are running. And then there is the network piece as well. Like You have to pay attention to that. You have to pay attention to the target uh, thing as well. Then there are tuning parameters, which you can actually do on DMS uh, thing as well. There's a very good public documentation around this which oh. talks about it. Okay. Uh, but as I said, like fast performance is generally a very open-ended question, and we need to really see what is actually causing the bottleneck to answer that question. Yeah, that's true. But you have to do it. You have to, I think, uh, you have to test it, and maybe you can stress test it. Well, definitely, yes. So we have had cases where uh, people were actually uh, testing it against a certain throughput that they wanted, say, 10,000 order lines processed per minute, and they wanted to see how fast can DMS catch up 
between the source and the target. And they were actually stress testing uh, it at different throughput levels because their production was running at a very high order processing rate. Mm. So you can actually put those benchmarks on it and watch the latency rates, and then we can actually see uh, very closely which components are causing it to slow down because there are several components involved in it. Okay. And if any one component is pegged on resources, sure. then overall it's going to be a yeah. less throughput. Okay, thanks. But we have done like terabytes of migration using uh -huh. it. Okay. Then one, one question about the, um, the um, replication back to the to 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 um, have a, a way back. I don't understand what you what you what you said there. Okay. The way to, to so the rollback slide. What I was trying to explain is that if you're come if you have a source Oracle databases which is on prem Oracle, right? right? And if you are coming to AWS and choose RDS PostgreSQL as target. Now there may be some cases where your customer is still not very confident that their application would run on. PostgreSQL, maybe because it's the first migration that you are doing. And they want, they still want Oracle to be around for the fallback plan. So that is what I was showing you in that slide, that you can still do that migration, but the target Postgres which you use, you can actually hook DMS on top of it and can use roll forward uh, using DMS to RDS Oracle instance. So at the same time, you have two copies which are ready and in sync, RDS PostgreSQL and RDS Oracle instance, which are actually in sync. So if your application, after flipping to RDS PostgreSQL, doesn't perform for some reason, you still have that RDS Oracle instance, which is still in sync because of the DMS is keeping all the data in sync. Then you can again take an outage and flip your DNS connection back to RDS Oracle instance in that case. That's okay. kind of a rollback strategy one of the customer devised around it. So I define, I define a, a, a task which, uh, which is um, do a, ro a rolling uh, replication so to, it, the, to yes. the Oracle. So that's, that's a separate task that you have to define. Yeah, so yeah. one task is actually writing from on-premises Oracle into RDS Postgres instance. Okay. And there's another task which is actually you have devised to write from RDS Postgres uh, SQL yeah. to RDS Oracle. Okay. Okay. Those are two separate tasks that you devise. Yep, thanks. Can you can you come to the mic? Please? Yeah, this is after go live, right? Because you're taking Oracle on-prem to RDS Postgres. That is true. This is yeah. this is post yeah, go live that we are yeah, exactly. talking about. So you have to do another DMS. Yeah, because you have to create from Postgres to right. Oracle again. Because think about it. Because if, if once you are in production, you you need there are changes which are happening in production okay. as well, and your database is changing continuously. Agreed. So you need some mechanism in place that you don't lose those many number of days of changes. So you figure out after three days that I need rollback, okay. then you need those uh, data in sync as well in the target system. So that is where DMS is trying to catch up and catch up those, keep yeah. Oracle in sync as well. Thank you. So I have another question now. Um, ours is kind of a little different complex database. So. Uh, we have kind of an OLTP and a data warehousing in the same database mm -hmm. because our 7 to 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. business is different than 7 p.m. Yeah. to 7 a.m. Yeah. So 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. we do all the online transactions. Then 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. we do all the data warehousing queries. We create reports. We generate yeah. extracts and everything, right? So very typical. So, yeah, yeah. Very <laughs> typical. I'm trying to. I'm trying to okay. tell the company to okay. Let's isolate these two databases. It's complex because the tables are so interlinked to each other. So we are working on the direction. So do you think this is the perfect scenario to go to Postgres or do you want to suggest something, okay, 
think on redshift on Aurora Postgres? Would you, strongly what's your suggestion? suggest refactoring because people are already making a move and coming to AWS environment. There are more options available. Redshift is a great choice for data warehousing. So if you have a very clear use case where you are having a decision support OLTP system uh, running 12 hours a day just to do that. Now Redshift itself is uh, based on a PostgreSQL engine. So you won't have a lot of difficulty keeping RDS Postgres or Aurora PostgreSQL and Redshift uh, in sync. You can trickle down that data to uh, Redshift actually and run all your, all your analytics there. Okay. will make it much more simpler, actually. Yeah, the reason we are an Oracle because the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. stuff. Mm -hmm. Because 7 a.m. to 7 in the morning, during the morning hours, you know, we can run on Postgres, but 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., which is a nightly workload, that we do a lot of extracts, a lot of big queries. I don't know whether Postgres can handle it, you know. That's where our fear is. You now, do you think any confident in that? Like, our, we are heavily, heavily PLSQL, Java, like a 10,000, yeah. 15,000 so lines of code. There are analytics use cases which are run on, are running on PostgreSQL. But is that something we are recommending it? No, because there are database engines and moving forward in the future, more and more customized databases are coming out, right? Redshift yeah. is the kind of performance which Redshift will provide you because it's a columnar store. is far more superior for analytics use case than what any other engine would provide you. So if you're asking me for analytics use case, is RDS Postgres a better choice or Redshift is a better choice, I would say uh, definitely lean towards Redshift for analytics use case. Okay. Thank you. And also one more question from my side. We are using XA driver on a distributed transaction. Now, mm -hmm. will that be supported in Postgres? Uh, that is something I can check for you, not something that I know. I would need to find out some more details or understand some more details from you. Yeah, if I can, can talk to no. you offline. And okay, talk we'll talk There's another gentleman, I think, right. waiting there to ask a question. I, uh, two questions. Uh, first one is pertaining to uh, DMS and the change data capture feature. Uh, we're working on refactoring a legacy application to a cloud-native application, and we're doing it uh, in modules. So we'll have the Oracle um, RDS in place. <clears throat> Most of that will be migrating over to a Postgres RDS. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the other module will still be in production in Oracle for six months or so. Um, would you say that the, the DMS change data capture feature would be uh, sufficient uh, for a six-month period, is, or is that geared more towards like short-term cutover type of uh, migrations? So there is no reason that you cannot use it for a longer reason. Initially, when we came out for DMS, it was strictly a database migration service, and we recommended customer to use it for migrations. I've seen several cases where people have gone fancy with DMS, and they even use it for rolling upgrades, or they even use it for a dedicated replication thing. Not that we suggest that, but I've seen several cases that uh, people are running it for a longer period of time. So if you're saying six months, uh, is there a use case where you want to keep source and target in sync for those six months of period? Uh, it's primarily we have to take some of the, the Postgres data now and replicate it over to the Oracle instance or the mm -hmm. Oracle RDS. Absolutely means uh, I've seen cases where people just leave it running. But the only okay. thing is you have to keep monitoring it if, if there is a lag or something. Uh, keep your troubleshooting and tools up. As with any other uh, tool, you would do that. But there is no reason that you cannot uh, uh, keep it uh, running for like months.
Okay. It's, it's a very usual use case. Okay. And the second question is, um, for this refactor, we're taking the opportunity to also redesign the database because the legacy application, the Oracle database was like, you know, 15 years old. Uh, so we've taken the opportunity to redo the schema as well. So for that piece, we can't use DMS because the, the database structures are so different. Um, glue is not an option for us. So we wanted to see, I w wanted to ask if there's any ETL tools that you would recommend or any tools that your customers have used that they found uh, particularly uh, successful. So I would need to understand more on why DMS is not working for you. Based on that, I can make some recommendations. I have seen some customers who had raised feature requests with DMS team because a certain feature they wanted and uh, which was absolute for them, and we actually came back and uh, enabled that feature in DMS, depending upon uh, how well is there or how fast is the requirement uh, there. So I can understand your use case more, and if required, I can file a feature request with the DMS team to take uh, care of it. But having said that, we always look at DMS as an enabler. If you're going to RDS PostgreSQL or Aurora PostgreSQL, you can use any other tool as well. Some customers have had success with some other third-party tools. Not that I can recommend some of those, but we can talk offline about your particular use case. Thank you very much. Sure. All right, I think we are almost at time. Uh, if there are still any more questions, both me and Ashok will be available uh, outside to take some of these questions. Thank you.